Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray. Lord, we need your assistance as we look at your word. We need your spirit to turn lights on in our head so that we see the truth, so we understand it, so that we love it, so we repent before it, so that we rejoice because of who you are and what you've done. We ask your assistance as we understand what humility and Christmas have to do with one another. Why it is that to be those who walk worthy of the gospel, who live as citizens worthy of your good news, Lord, who live as those who have been saved by you, by your Son, not because of any merit of our own, but because of the humble work that you've done. As those who live consistent with that, we need to be humble. Help us to understand that. Um, help it, us to be changed in the manners in which, in the ways in which we should. Lord, I pray that you would apply your word also to the hearts of those who continue to walk in self-righteousness, who continue to look to themselves as their hope and not to your son Jesus, that you would change them and they would repent before you and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. So we hear about this concept, humility. What, what is what is humility? I mean, what is the idea of humility? It's popular in the culture for various reasons. People have various ideas about what it is. But what is humility and what does it have to do with Christmas? Why am I bringing up humility at Christmas? Well, let me tell you first what humility is not. Humility is not a denial of God's grace in your life. It is not a denial of God's grace in your life. In other words, God has done gracious things for all of us. And we don't start off by saying, I'm being humble by denying the gracious things God has done for me. I've, I, I have remembered when I was younger, always, especially as a teen, there was the most beautiful girls who always were like, I'm so ugly. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? As if that's humble. Now, I'm not saying they should be immodest and walk around going, look at how beautiful I am, either. But the point is, they don't have to deny that God has been gracious, deny that God has been gracious to them in some way. They also shouldn't be flaunting it. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying to be immodest and flaunt it. Right? That's why I don't dress like this often, because I don't want to be immodest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good, you're following. You're following. Good, you're tracking with me. Have you guys seen 
um, American Idol. Most people in America have watched American Idol. Is that, is that right? And you see two kinds of people that s- tend to come there. Really, really bad singers who think they're fantastically good, right? And they're immodest and they're wrong, first of all. God has not been gracious to them in that way in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but they think he has, and they're wrong. And then you see really, really good singers who don't really recognize they're all that good oftentimes, right? And then you have the good ones who are prideful about it and immodest. But you, you tend to have that. These people who come and say, you know what? I know God's given me a gift. I'm a good singer, and they want to sing, and they sing well, and they're not immodest about it. They, but they're confident that they have this gift. There's nothing wrong with that. They should be confident that God gave them that gift. God has done a glorious thing for them. I see Reuben come up here and play the keyboard and write songs. Reuben should be confident that God has given him a gift, and he should be thankful for that, but he should not be immodest about it. Probably to make a, a worship album with this big mug on the front and it says Reuben across it might be immodest, right? There, there, there's a point at which you've gone over the, you understand where I'm going with this? The other thing I see that people think is humility is this idea about modesty about the truth. They want to be modest about the truth. That is not humility, to be modest about the truth. What do I mean by that? We should be modest about ourselves, but we should never lack confidence in God and his truth. Never. That's one of the great faults in what I see of what people think is humility today. And here's, here's how it often looks. They think it's humble to be uncertain about the truth of God's word. It's humble somehow to be modest about whether or not we have the truth and other people don't. So we see a guy who confidently, a guy who confidently asserts that something in the Bible is true, and people say of him, oh, man, he has been prideful. Well, maybe he is. I don't know. But that isn't the question. The question is, if he asserts this to be true, the question is, is he right about that or is he wrong about that? And maybe he's being completely humble in saying this is true with confidence because he says, I submit to an authority outside of myself. Nothing prideful about that. If your math teacher, for example, comes to you and says, you know, well, you know, I think two plus two equals four. But, but I don't want to go and push that on other people. I don't want to be overly dogmatic about that or overly confident because there are some people who might think it means equals five and, and they're good people, I'm sure. Right? What would you say at that point? Are you out of your mind? What are you doing teaching math? Or would you say, you know, you're so humble. I really appreciate the humility of my math teacher. He is not too dogmatic about what two plus two equals. He understands that good people disagree on these things. Right? You'd wonder, I think, what does being a good person have to do anything with what two plus two equals? It's either true or it's not true, right? G.K. Chesterton, an English scholar who's now dead, said this, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty or humility has moved from the organ of ambition and modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about the truth and this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The party doubts is exactly the party ought not to doubt, the divine reason. The new skeptic is so humble that he doubts if he can even learn. 
The old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which makes him stop working altogether. We're on the road to producing a race of man too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. So, so if that's what humility's not, if it's not modesty about the truth, if it's not a denial of God's grace in your life, then what is humility? Well, it certainly includes modesty about yourself, for sure. Humility includes that. It's definitely the fact, as Paul says in Romans, that one, not, one ought not to think more highly of himself, right? At the least, humility is that apart from God, you can do nothing, and that everything you have comes from him. And I would say this to those of you who are not Christians. Humility, real humility, first begins, or is found in, repentance of self-righteous claims upon God that he owes you something. And a childlike trust that Jesus is your only hope begins there. Humility is also found in seeking the benefit of others before yourselves. Look at what Paul says here in Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, talking to the church at Philippi, says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, to count others more significant than yourselves. Seeking the benefit of others over self-benefit is humility. Now, I can talk about humility from multiple vantage points, but I want to focus on one specific thing um, about the humility we learn at Christmas. I want to talk about the humility that springs from sacrificial love. It's a humility that seeks the benefit of others to the point of laying down your own rights for them, even your own life for them. It's the humility that Paul tells the church at Philippi that the church must have if she's to walk worthy of the gospel, if she's to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel. She has to have this kind of humility. If we're going to be a church that lives consistently with and worthy of the gospel, then we must learn humility from Jesus. And Jesus started teaching us true humility at Christmas. Look with me at Philippians 2.5. Look there with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that is by nature God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What does Paul mean by the fact that Jesus did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing? I mean, what, what does he mean by that? Did not count equality a thing uh, with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Well, there are some scholars that say, well, this is the kenosis doctrine, because there's a Greek word here about emptying himself um, with that word in it, kenosis. So they call it the kenosis doctrine. They say what happened is, is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, when he became a man, gave up some of his divine attributes. He was no longer omnipotent or omniscient or you know, all-powerful or all-knowing. He was no longer these things. He had given up some of his divine attributes. And, in other words, he had given up attributes that are essential to being divine. But now he's a member of the Trinity, Son of God, second person second person Trinity, member of the Trinity. So I don't know what happens if he gives up essential attributes. Do you have some kind of cosmic explosion and abinity that comes out of that instead of a Trinity because he's no longer three but two? I'm not exactly sure, but 
That's what some scholars tend to argue for. And I think they're completely wrong. They're misreading this text, misreading the purpose of the text, or misreading the context and the grammar of the text. And I'm going to explain to you why in a second, but I want you to understand this. We know that in some ways Jesus did withhold, voluntarily withhold the exercise of some of his divine attributes. At times, we know he did. However, I don't believe this passage is talking about that at all. I don't believe this passage is talking about God emptying himself of essential attributes. I don't believe this passage is talking about Jesus deciding to give up the exercise of those attributes. I think what we have to understand about this passage is talking about humility. Paul is arguing for humility and our need to sacrifice our rights for the benefits of others. And we're to do this, as he says in verse 5, like Jesus did. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? The mind that's in Christ Jesus. Have that mind. Be like him. Be humble. We need to sacrifice our rights for the benefits of others. Then he goes on to say, how did he humble himself? Who, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. This idea of, of, of by very nature God. Those in the form of God did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So how did he humble himself? Well, he didn't grasp at what was rightfully his. He, did, he emptied himself. But how did he empty himself? Look what he says next. But made himself nothing. How? Taking the form of a servant. There's your explanation. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He didn't lay down some attribute of divinity. He took on humanity. He took on the form of a servant. That's how Jesus humbled himself. How did the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, humble himself? It wasn't by saying, I'm giving up my divinity. It was by saying, I'm taking on humanity. And I'm going to be obedient to the law. And I'm going to die for them. Think about it this way. The Creator becoming a creature. They're not humbling in that. The creator becoming a creature, laying down the manifestation of his glory who no one can see, no man can see and live, and putting onto himself humanity and walking among us. God, the Almighty, becoming a helpless baby. I don't know if you guys ever stop and contemplate that at Christmas. I mean, we read passages like I read this morning out of Luke 2. And if you want to look there, you can with me. But Luke 2, he says this. We read these things. I don't think we stop and consider it. In the same region, verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. And what is that? For unto you is born, I want you to hear that, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Think about that. The Lord was just born today. The Lord of all, the God of all glory, the creator of all things, who is glorious beyond anything we can comprehend, is born. You don't think that floors them at this point and what do the angels say they are so blown away by this they go on and say he's born you're going to find your lord and this will be verse 12 
and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. He's laying in a horse trough. The Lord of glory. He's born. He's a baby. He's helpless. Almighty God in helpless baby. Let me tell you something. If you're not a Christian today, um, this is why so many unbelievers I, refer, or I run into think I'm a fool. How can you believe this? Even believers, you wonder why your friends think you're nuts. You think God became a baby. That ought to astound you. The Almighty being a helpless baby. That's what we claim at Christmas. That is a humbling claim to be making. What does it mean that he did? John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. That's speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning, Jesus God. And the Word, verse 14, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh. He became a human, and he dwelt among us. You know what it says there? By dwelt, he tabernacled. The glory of God became contained in humanity. He was with us as one of us. That's what we claim Christmas teaches us. That's humility. The glorious God becoming a helpless baby. John 17 actually references this. Jesus tells us what he means, what Paul means when he says he laid down he laid down these things. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. This is in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he's praying before the Father. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now hear this. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. What? What does he say next? With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You hear that? Jesus recognized, I've given up my glory to be here among these people, to be obedient, to die for their salvation. Now, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had. See what he's laid down? He's laid down his glory Frankly, if you think about Philippians 2 properly and you see what's happening there and you understand that in Paul's thought all through the New Testament, he talks about the fact that you have the first Adam, the Adam in the garden, and then you have the second Adam, Jesus, who comes and repeats what Adam screwed up and what Israel screwed up and what all of us mess up, right? And if you think about it, what happens with Adam in the garden? Adam grasped for what was not rightfully his, didn't he? Satan came to him and said, Adam, you can be like God. Go after your pleasure through disobedience. Eat that fruit. And Adam grasped it. You know what Jesus did? He did not grasp what was rightfully his. He is God. He could be treated as God. And he did not grasp for that. He became a servant. He humbled himself. Adam is the picture of pride. I will have what is not rightfully mine. I will be like God. Jesus, the picture of humility. I am God and I will relinquish what is rightfully mine, the glory that belongs to me for the sake of others. But if we're going to learn this humility, 
that starts with Christmas, where the God Almighty becomes a helpless baby. If we're going to learn this humility, we can't stop at Christmas. We have to continue to Good Friday. That's the day in which Jesus dies on the cross. Philippians 2.80, Paul goes on and says this, and being found in human form, that being Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of God not only humbled himself by becoming a man, he humbled himself by placing himself under his own law and taking on its precept. What does that mean? It's command. Do this. Don't do this. He took that on and obeyed it in our place. And he also took on its penalty. What does that mean? For disobedience, this will happen to you. Death. Eternal, conscious torment in hell. Jesus took on not only the precept and kept it in our place, he took on the penalty in our place on the cross for us. Why did he do all this? Why does God choose to humble himself for sinners like us? I mean, we're his enemies. We are the ones who have turned against him. We are the ones who have rejected him and all that he's offered us. We are the ones who have grasped after what is not rightfully ours. We are the ones who are due punishment from a just and holy God. So why does he choose to, instead of turning that punishment upon us, why does he choose to humble himself and turn the punishment upon himself? What motivates him? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Why did he do all this? Because he loves us, that's why. Jonathan Edwards, who was a scholar in early American history, um, who is still probably considered or regarded as one of the most intelligent men to ever live um, you know, natively on this continent, said the following about um, this. He said this, God's Trinitarian essence, God is a trinity, his essence is love. Essence is love. And the highest or most beautiful love, the highest or most beautiful love is sacrificial love for the undeserving. Hear that? In other words, sacrificial love for undeserving people is the highest and most beautiful form of love, and it's the form of love that God chose to extend to us. It's the reason sacrificial love for undeserving people is the reason the universe exists and why Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man who was obedient to the point of death for us. God created everything to display his magnificent glory, especially in his sacrificial love for undeserving people. Do you guys hear that? Stop and think about this for just a second. The God of all things, God of the universe, the one who created it all, who's infinite, who's eternal, who's majestic, who's holy, who's just, who's pure, who's gracious and loving and merciful and kind, the God who deserves all glory and honor and praise, that God planned in eternity past, in eternity past, for all eternity decided that what he wanted to do, what he wanted to do 
was humble himself and save sinful people. That God. That he wanted to become one of us, humble himself, give up his rights in that sense, be treated like a servant, be beaten and be killed to save us. He decided in eternity past to sacrificially love undeserving people. That's what God did. That's humility. That's humility. And that's what Paul says in Philippians. You want to be worthy of the gospel? You want to be citizens who live worthy of the gospel? Then understand what the gospel says. It says that God Almighty became a baby. And not only became a baby, he grew up and he submitted to the law and he went to the cross and he paid for your penalty for you. God did that. God did that for you. Now, you're saved by believing in that and as those who are now saved, as those who are his people, as those who are citizens of his kingdom, walk worthy of this gospel. And how do you walk worthy of it? Humble yourselves as he was humble. Give up your rights for the sake of other people. Do you know what this looks like in your life? This looks like, it looks like you deciding, you deciding that, you know what, no matter how someone treats me, no matter how they react toward me, I'm going to serve them. Think about that. You know what it looks like for Jesus? It looks like Jesus saying, you know what, I'm going to come to dinner with my disciples the night that I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to, as the God-man, I'm going to take off my clothes, completely humiliate myself, put on the clothing, essentially a towel of a servant, and I'm going to get on the floor and wash on, my, on the floor and wash the feet of my people. That's what it looks like. I'm going to be a servant before them. I'm even going to wash the feet of the man who I am now telling you is going to betray me tonight. Put me to death. I'm going to relinquish my right to be glorified and honored and seen as who I really am for the sake of loving you for your benefit. Judas, hear that? What does that then look like in your marriages? What does that look like? Well, if my spouse doesn't treat me the way I want to be treated, then I won't treat them the way that I should, right? I'm not going to sacrifice for their benefit, unless they give me something I want. I am going to claim my rights in this relationship. That's what we do all the time. Every time we're in a fight with anybody, every time we have a lack of reconciliation with another person, it is because we self-righteously hold to the fact that we have some right to be treated differently than we were treated. And because we do, we are going to hold on to those rights, and we will not say I'm going to bow myself down in humility and serve this person. But that's what Jesus did. The man who traded him off for 30 pieces of silver so that he would die, Jesus served. The God of the universe became a servant to his creatures. Can you imagine giving up a bigger right than being glorified as God is? Can you imagine giving up a greater right than that? And we're piddling around with stupid stuff. I don't like the way that person treated me at work yesterday so I'm not going to serve them anymore. I don't think my wife, the way she made dinner last night or the way she did this or the way she looked at me, I don't think that was appropriate, so now I'm going I'm to not serve her any longer. I don't like the way the pastor, you know, 
did this, or I don't like the way the person set up the coffee at church, or whatever, so now I'm going to, right? I'm going to claim my rights to be treated the way I think I should be treated, and I'm not going to humble myself and serve other people, right? And what Paul says is, you know what? If you do that, church, you're not walking worthy of the gospel. Your life as citizens in this kingdom are not worthy of the gospel. And you know what you're not going to do? You're never going to have the kind of unity the church needs is to advance the gospel, because the church needs to have unity to advance the gospel. And that unity to advance the gospel among this culture is driven out of humility. It's driven out of putting the needs of others before ourselves. It's driven out of saying, I want to be like Christ. I want to lay down my rights for the benefit of others. God did this. Think of the love of God, the humility he displayed in all creation. God becoming a man. Think of this. The creator becoming creature for us. The Almighty becoming helpless for us. The Lord becoming servant for us. The lawgiver becoming lawkeeper for us. The holy becoming sin for us. The honored becoming shame for us. The blessed becoming curse for us. The Son becoming enemy for us. The beloved becoming forsaken for us. The judge becoming criminal for us. The rich becoming poor for us. The life becoming death for us, the magnificent becoming marred for us, the exalted becoming humble for us. That's what we see in the gospel. This gospel that God would give his own son for his creatures, that God would humble himself for the benefit of sinners is so astounding that Peter can say of these things that they're things angels long to look into. Do you know that? The angels, the angels who continuously gaze upon the glory of God, who have for millennia gazed upon the glory of God, are so stricken with the gospel that the Bible says of them that they long to look into these things. They're so amazed at the God of the universe becoming humble and giving himself for sinners. They long to look into it. This is why on the night of Jesus' birth, you hear the multitude of angels breaking forth in song and declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. This sacrificial love which moves God to decree to, decree to create and to decree to permit sin and to decree to gather his church through humble, the humble crosswork of the Son is what Paul calls in Ephesians the manifold wisdom of God. You guys hear that? You want to know what the wisdom of God is? It's foolishness to men. Foolishness to men, isn't it? The manifold wisdom of God is that God would humble himself because of his great love and pay a penalty for his people. That's his manifold wisdom. So that he could save them. So that he could be gracious to them. That he would take on the form of a servant for the salvation of others. For the benefit of us. That's his manifold wisdom. And Paul actually says in Ephesians that that manifold wisdom of God is displayed through the church, even to the angels and demons. Think of that. He calls us in Ephesians 4 after he says this, that, that the church is displaying the manifold wisdom of God. He says, now, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You want to know what your calling is? To display the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly realms, to the universe. That's your calling. Now, church, walk worthy of that calling. You know what the first thing he says out of his, what first thing out of Paul's pen comes next? In all humility. 
Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called in humility. In humility. As Jesus was humble. To walk worthy, we have to be humble, which means we have to be like Jesus, sacrificially loving people enough to put others before ourselves. See, because God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. Why? Because nothing is more ungodly than pride and nothing is more godly than humility. Now, I'm going to say this to you unbelievers. Those of you who don't know Christ in here, and I'm sure some of you don't, I, I, I want you to hear this part. I don't want you to mishear me, okay? But I'm going to say this, and I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. You, as an unbeliever, are walking in self-righteousness and sin. Say, but aren't believers? Yes, we are as well. Please don't misunderstand me. However, the distinction is, the distinction is that you are walking in that self-righteousness deciding you don't need God. You're walking in your sin thinking that somehow you don't need forgiveness, that you don't need to repent, that you don't need to trust in Jesus as your only hope, that somehow, in spite of the fact that you've been a sinner, you can somehow accumulate enough righteousness to be good before God in some way. And the Bible is clear that Jesus is your only hope of righteousness. The distinction between an unbeliever and a believer, other than the fact that we've been born again to new life by the gospel, is this, as far as what we see. It's not that we've never walked in self-righteousness, because I have and do. It is not that we've never walked in sin, because I have and I do. It is because we recognize that our only hope before God is Jesus. It's it. It's it. I have turned from, I've repented, turned from my reliance and trust upon myself and turned to my reliance upon and trust in Jesus. And that is a glorious work of God in me that he did because of what he did for me on the cross. And so I would say to you, unbelievers, that you need to repent of your self-righteousness and your self-exaltation and turn to Jesus as your righteousness and trust him. Nothing exalts God more than humble trust in him does. Nothing. Humility comes before exaltation. Listen, you'll either exalt him now in your lives through humbly trusting him, or you'll exalt him in the end. Hear that? Either one. If you do so now, it's for your eternal joy. That's why it's joy, right? For your eternal joy. The angels declare, isn't it? bring you good news of great joy. If you exalt him now, if you turn to him now, it's for your eternal joy. If you do not turn to him, if you don't see him and exalt him until then, I mean after you die, it is to your eternal terror. That's why Paul says here in Philippians 2, verse 9, after he says he become obedient to the point of death on the cross, he says this, therefore, God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You guys hear that? Someday, every one of us in this room, every one of our knees will bow, and every one of our tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is 
Lord, to the glory of God our Father. However, we will either do that for our eternal joy or we will do that for our eternal perdition. And the distinction is whether or not now, at this time, you look to him as your hope instead of yourself. That's it. That's the distinction. Now, at this point, do you look to him? So I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Unbelievers, turn to him. Right now, turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and turn to him and cry out to him, I need you. Save me. Forgive me. Give me new life. Change me. You're my only hope. I can do nothing apart from you. I can't even do something with you when it comes to my salvation. You must do it all. I need you. Please save me. Forgive me. Cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Count me righteous with your son. He is my only hope. I ask you to turn and do that. I plead with you, believers. Unbelievers, turn and do that. And believers, don't forget, don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus is your only hope as well. He wasn't just your only hope when you got saved. He remains your only hope. Continually, repentantly, turning to him, saying, Lord, I need you. I trust you. You are my hope. You are my righteousness. You are my joy. Please help me be like your son. Help me walk worthy of your gospel in humility, sacrificing my life, laying down my rights for the benefit of other people so that, so that, People might see, so people might see the light, not only as I preach the gospel, but as I live in light of it. People might see the truth. They might be saved. They might see my good works and glorify my Father in heaven so that the gospel might advance, so that unbelievers who do not worship him would worship him, so that he would receive the glory that is due his name. Let me pray. Lord, we ask you um, this morning to please um, work powerfully in the lives of everyone here, myself included, or that you would work in us, that you would teach us humility. Lord, for those who do not believe that they would turn from self-righteousness and they would turn from self-exaltation and they would turn from sin, they would see Jesus as their only hope. They would walk with him and trust in him. Lord, for those of us who, who are believers, who've recognized that Jesus is our hope, that we would not lose sight of that, that we would want to be like him, that we would live worthy of his gospel, that we would be humble with him, that that humbleness, that humility would bring unity to the church, Lord, and that the church, as a result of its unity, would advance the gospel with power, that many would be saved that your son would be exalted in all the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.